welcome to our Brexit webinar focusing on the impact of Brexit and the UK's trade talks on the tech sector. I'm Peter Watts, a corporate partner here at Hogan Lovells and co-head of our global tech industry sector team. I'm pleased to be joined today by colleagues from across the firm, Charles Brasted, who heads our public law and policy practice here in London, Aileen Dussain, who's head of our UK trade team, Robert Gardner, Director of Government Affairs in our public law and policy team, Richard Diffenthal and Caitlin Weeks, a partner and senior associate in our corporate transactional team, and Angus Coulter, partner in our London competition practice. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Craig Melson, a programme manager for Tech UK. We've extended our 2020 Brexit webinar series to take a deeper dive into some of the topics. High Tech Heaven will focus on the impact of Brexit and future trade deals as well as the new UK government's policy initiatives on tech businesses and particularly M&A and investment across the tech sector. As you'll see, our next two webinars will explore issues that are likely to be relevant to the tech in the UK. That's the UK's budget coming up, which will set the government's financial sense of direction, and then the state of play in data. Today's webinar recording will be available on our Brexit Hub, so please share it with any colleagues engaged in your Brexit planning. In our webinar today, we will have our usual update from Charles and Aileen on the current status of both Brexit and the coming trade talks, discuss what this could mean for tech businesses and investors from the perspective of Tech UK, and also having in mind the UK government's agenda, and explore the implications of this for investment in the UK tech industry, during which we'll also touch on updates from a competition law perspective and some insights for digital health, fintech and auto tech businesses and investors. The team's more than happy to take questions from the audience. You can, also, you can use the question box on your webinar screen at any time to send them in. It's described as Q&A and technical support. The questions come directly to us and are not seen by other participants. If we read out your question live on the webinar, we will do so anonymously. And if we run out of time for all questions today, we'll respond to them by email. So let's kick off with Charles. The UK left the EU on the 31st of January. Can you remind us of the latest position on Brexit? Well, so Boris Johnson has got Brexit done. Um, I doubt that many of us woke up the following morning to a world that seemed very different in terms of how we live, how our businesses work. Um, we are in a transitional period up to the end of December 2020, governed by the withdrawal agreement that uh, the UK government and the EU agreed uh, recently. Um, what that does is this. It means that there is a high degree of regulatory continuity during that transitional period. The rules that we have to abide by, the way that they are enforced, has not changed. That is because, both as a matter of UK law and EU law, for the time being, the UK is treated as if it were an EU member state, even though it no longer is. Of course, that is the transitional period up to the end of December 2020. Beware the cliff edge thereafter. What has changed, though? Well, a couple of things. Well, the first is that the UK is no longer a part of the EU institutions, the Commission, the Council, the Parliament, the EU-wide regulators. It no longer has a role or a voice in those organisations that govern the rules that continue to apply. But yet the UK will still be subject to not only the existing EU laws and rules, but also any new EU laws and rules passed during the withdrawal uh, agreement transitional period. Does that make a big difference? Well, time will tell, and it is worth looking out for changes in approach, changes in direction of travel within EU institutions, absent the UK's voice influence, and I would say in relation to a number of the regulatory agencies, the UK's capacity and role in doing the work of those agencies. There are a number where the UK played a very big role in getting the stuff done. 
So that's one way things have changed. The other way things have changed, of course, and this is what's crucial from the political perspective, is that the UK and the EU are now free to negotiate a trade agreement properly. They, they can get underway with that. And of course, we've seen in the last few days, and we'll continue to see this week, the mandates of the two sides emerging publicly, and we can expect negotiations to start soon. And from a UK perspective, of course, that's not just about uh, our ability to negotiate with the EU. Um, it's also about the ability to negotiate with the rest of the world. Uh, so we will start to see that becoming more and more active. Of course, Aline will talk more about that. There is another bit of freedom that exists, which is the ability of the UK to start making domestic policy. Partly a function of getting Brexit done, probably, frankly, more a function of having a working majority in Parliament for the first time in a long time. Robert will say more about that later. So that's where we are now, subject to an extension of one or two years of the transitional period, if that's agreed. If it's not agreed, then, of course, um, that doesn't mean that we necessarily don't reach an agreement um, that covers a period after December 2020, but we're into uncharted territory there. So what happens at the end of the year if there's no deal? So if there's no deal at all, we're back to that regulatory cliff edge that we were talking about a year ago. Pretty straightforward. All of the rules that currently apply, the way we understand them, will cease to apply. Uh, and we will move into a domestic regulatory regime, much of which now implemented in domestic legislation, but all of the things that evolve mutual recognition, uh, mutual cooperation between the UK and EU will fall away, whether that's authorisations, standards and so on, those will fall away then. Uh, it's not quite a hard Brexit of the sort we were talking about a year ago, but some of the big picture issues like uh, um, how much money the UK is going to pay and so on, the issues relating to exit and transition, those have been resolved and agreed. But the regulatory environment, you've got the same cliff edge we're always talking about. It's possible that by then we will have some equivalence decisions in some areas like data, maybe financial services, bits of financial services regimes, because those equivalence processes can now get underway because the UK is a third country. Um, but uh, that, is, uh, that is unknown at this stage. So the, the real question I would say is probably how much of a deal can be done this year. What we won't have, I suspect, is a comprehensive trade agreement by the end of the year, but Aline may have a different view on that. So, so given that potential outcome, how well prepared is the UK? And then maybe Aileen, you could talk to how well prepared the EU is. So think of the UK in two parts. How well prepared is the UK government, the regulatory system, government system? Well, the statutory work, the legislative work to give effect to a domesticated regime based on the current EU regime, the vast majority of that legislative work has now been done. It was done in preparation for a hard exit last year. There's a little bit to do. Um, there are some gaps, and no doubt, frankly, there are a whole load of inadvertent mistakes in there too. But broadly, that is ready to go if needed. Oven ready, as Boris Johnson would tell us. Um, but that is not the UK's readiness. The other question is how ready are businesses? Uh, how ready are individuals? And I think I would say, from my experience, that Wolf has been cried just a few too many times on a hard exit and what businesses need to do to be ready for it. Having geared up not once but twice for that, I think there's a real question about whether uh, they will feel able, ready, willing to devote the resources to preparing for another hard cliff edge at the end of this year. So for most regulated businesses, they've done all the hard headline work already They've moved there, they've relocated, they've uh, restructured, and so on. But on the back office and supply chain side issues that are not front of mind, uh, and in other less regulated industries, uh, it seems, uh, I suspect businesses are not that ready and not that willing to start gearing up for the end of the year until the likely outcome of the negotiations we're now starting is much better known than it is today. And from the EU side, when uh, we refer to the EU as the EU institution, I mean, of course, the Commission 
and the member states through the Council have a very well-established process when they engage in trade policy negotiations and trade talks with other countries in the world. You will all remember that the Commission and the EU as a whole is coming out of a very large trade deal with Japan, uh, signed uh, a few days ago Vietnam. The Canada free trade agreement was agreed, finalized, and implemented recently as well. So the process is, is there, is well-established. Engagement with businesses as part of those trade talks are also something that is very well organized in Brussels with the Trade Federation, the EU Association, fully engaged with the Commission and um, uh, the member states in those talks. So clearly the EU27 position on trade talks is, 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 is quite well, um, is, is clear and, and all sort of, I think, well and ready to go. With respect to preparedness and preparation from the EU27 businesses side, I think it's, it's fair to say that a lot of businesses across the channel will have prepared for the hard Brexit scenario a year ago, and, and they, those companies will not have um, uh, put aside their contingency planning. So there is some sense of preparation from an EU27 uh, perspective as well. However, it's worth noting that there are a number of uh, the new Commission policy agenda that to some extent might be the priorities of the, those EU27 businesses, and Brexit is just one item in the agenda. The Commission is pushing towards a very ambitious, uh, digital trade policy agenda. We see lots of new in in initiatives on taxation, environmental standards, and I think all of these EU27 wide issues in the context as well of, of microeconomic issues like we're facing at the moment, supply chain, coronavirus import, um, uh, impact on supply chain issues, those are very much at the core of EU27 businesses. Brexit is of course there, but it is not the only issue on the table. So now the talks between the UK and the EU are due to start on Monday. What's an EU-UK FTA likely to mean for tech? Well, so far we don't really know, right? Because it's difficult to comment on something for which we have absolutely um, uh, no drafts. We, we don't know what the chapters would look like. We don't know as yet whether, I mean, we'll, what we know is we want to have an FTA, but there will be other agreements that will have to come with that FTA. So it's not only about trade and it's worth uh, bearing that in mind. Uh, but let's take stock on where we are. Uh, the EU yesterday released its, its final version of its EU mandate, so its own negotiative objective. Nothing very much of surprise there because the Commission had already released the draft a few weeks ago. So what we saw yesterday was a finalized, a consolidated version that had member states, i.e. Council, uh, input on it. And, and the Parliament, I should not forget about the European Parliament, that will play a key role in, in those trade talks from an EU27 perspective. So the, 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 the EU mandate is very clear. It wants an ambitious trade deal. The trade deal is not the only thing that they want. The, the EU also wants, as I, as I mentioned earlier, some, some um, separate agreements uh, along with trade that will touch on security, research cooperation, mobility, and other very important aspects of the bilateral relationship with the UK. Uh, the two very important points, of course, as I'm sure you will already know on the call uh, for the EU are really the level playing field and to what extent um, the EU will not negotiate or will not uh, compromise. We know that there will be negoti negotiations, but of course, to what extent there will be a strong compromise from the EU side on level playing field will be the question mark of the next months to come. And the references to parallel evolution of rules across the channel is really where the Commission and the EU will want to focus on. Those will be priorities for the EU and of course uh, will have significant impact for uh, the tech sector that operates um, uh, until now in a very sort of unified and harmonized system of EU and EUK legislative um, um, rules. 
that's on the EU side. Tomorrow we will see the UK negotiating objectives being released by the government. We don't expect much uh, uh, novelties in that specific um, um, context. Uh, of course, the UK, the key objective from a trade uh, talks perspective for the UK and in the whole context of Brexit is really uh, political, economic and legal sovereignty. So, of course, this will play out, it will play out in the context of, of this level playing field red line that the EU seems to have imposed. For the tech sector, and I will stop on that for, for that specific question, but it's very important for all of you on the phone, uh, free movement of people, of course, uh, will be gone as from December 2020. So, of course, the um, uh, access to talent to the extent that those will be discussed as part of the UK-EU mobility agenda will be very important and something to, to watch out for. Could, can we expect, realistically, the UK and the EU to achieve an FTA by the end of the year? We have eight months and, and nothing has really started because the talks are scheduled to start um, uh, on Monday. So it's a very, very tight agenda. We need to have something by October because there is a process that needs to happen at European Parliament level. I won't even enter into the discussion as to whether we will need uh, national member states ratification. The Commission is, is hoping that this is not going to be the case, but it's a very clear, uh, very tight uh, agenda. I think, I mean, I'm perhaps I'm the, the, the optimistic here um, uh, on the call, but I think it can, it can be done uh, if there is a political will, what we see as part of trade talks. Um, uh, there is a legal way for doing things, but again, it will all depend, I think, on, of course, I did not mention fisheries that will be at the core of, of the discussion, but the level playing field and to what extent there could be some sort of agreed um, um, negotiating position on both sides on that specific aspect of the talks. Okay, thanks, Eileen. Craig, do you think the UK's government's position is to prioritise divergence, and if so, how do you see that from a, a UK tech industry perspective? Well, thanks, Philly. Yeah, so the government is now led by the kind of true Brexiteer believers, the people that think, rightly or wrongly, that the ability and the right to diverge from the EU acquis is what Brexit is all about. That's the prize of Brexit. So that's kind of been a significant shift in what has uh, taken place before. Now, of course, some of, some of the language that we're getting, some of the messaging is well, could be negotiating bluster, but it would be very prudent of uh, tech firms to take account of the um, risks. And um, some of the sort of, well, some of the key risks I'm going to kind of highlight are uh, data adequacy. I'm not going to go into detail on that because I think you've got a whole webinar on that afterwards. So uh, we'll leave that for now. But that's making sure that there's an adequacy agreement between the UK and the EU is, is absolutely vital for the sector. Um, and then, kind of as Aline sort of alluded to, we've got tariffs, duties, and import processes and procedures. Uh, I think we're going to have to get used to having to carry these out. I think that's going to be a reality of Brexit. So um, it's going to happen. We just need to know exactly what shape that's going to happen in and what the process is. So we've, we've been calling for the government to um, tell us ASAP uh, just what they want us to do and what is expected of them and how do we show compliance. Uh, I think the other um, sort of key impact of the tech sector is that there are going to be different rules for entering the UK and EU market. So that means the status of the e-marking, declarations, exporting, customs, the kind of question around your legal liability shifting from that of a um, distributor to that of an, of an importer. And of course, uh, there is even potential for design and manufacture requirements of tech products that will be different from the UK and EU market, especially if the UK wants to say go further on for example, eco-design regulations for products or secure by design uh, legislation or you know, any other area that they want to deliberately go higher than EU standards to make the point that, that Brexit doesn't have to be about deregulation, but if it still requires or if it still results in a design or material change to your technology product, that's going to be a big difference. So overall, it's been a big shift from the continuity approach that um, the previous administration had where EU law will be retained, and companies need to be prepared for that. So does that mean we can expect UK laws to look quite different from those in the EU from the end of the year? Uh, potentially. So, I mean, as Charles said, on day one after transition, the EU and UK statute books will be the same. I mean, the UK did really good work in bringing across the 
various elements of EU law into UK law, um, primarily via uh, secondary legislation. So on day one, it will be the same, but obviously with a big majority um, and with a kind of government that's prioritising divergence, we can expect them to soon after look at where they want to deregulate. I'm not sure where the tech sector will sit in in the queue for for that for that divergence, but they will be on the list. And what's Tech UK doing with the government on these issues? So I'm kind of, our main one is to be sort of representing our members. So obviously we're the lobby group, the membership group, the trade association, whatever you want to call us. We are the representatives of the tech sector in the UK. So we've been engaging with government regularly. We've had roundtables, workshops. We have member meetings. So basically making the position of uh, the industry known to government, submitting data, submitting costs, submitting um, basically real-world impact so they can understand what the what their policy decisions are going to mean in practice. Uh, hopefully, I think some of them are on the line, but hopefully helping our members understand what's happening um, and kind of being that kind of, you know, trying to help them sort of cut through some of the political nonsense that goes on and say, like, this is what it actually means for you. Um, trying to have a meaningful two-way relationship as well, because I think it's really important that you know, <clears throat> nine months away now um, from Saturday, or no, it's big year, isn't it, from Sunday, we'll be uh, nine months away from exiting the transition period. So we've been really stating the case that we need to know even if we don't like it, we need to know what's going on. Um, and I think it's kind of one of those big shifts in sort of the way business is engaging with government is that we can't do what we did before. We have to be the provider of solutions. And I think the tech sector is quite well placed to do that, maybe compared to some other sectors, because they can design some of the solutions. But I think we need to say, this is a, okay, we, we have loads of problems. We have, to say, we have loads of problems, but also here is how we think you can uh, solve it and solve it in a way that meets your priorities. So, Robert, looking at it the other way around, the UK government's making a lot of noise about being attractive to high-tech sectors. What's it really trying to achieve? Well, Peter, thank you. I think the starting point uh, for that sort of question is just to consider what it is that this government is set on achieving at a general level, and that is two things. One is to get Brexit done, as Charles was talking about, and of course that means both the political expediency of being able to choose to diverge if it wishes to, uh, but also uh, to consider the future trading position of the United Kingdom with the rest of the world. And the second point is the levelling up agenda to ensure that those borrowed votes from the last general election are retained in the next general election. So it's against that backdrop that I'll answer this, this question. Um, I think from the government's perspective, it wants to boost progress across all sectors uh, and thereby increasing prosperity, but also jobs and revenue for the country. So this is approaching the domestic priority that I've just set out. And I think tech is one of the sectors that can really power governments to deliver those domestic policy agendas, um, because what Craig's just said, it can support delivery of those um, of that prosperity, but it can also support the government's priorities for uh, regional and even rural investment. So it comes to the levelling up agenda that I've just spelt out as well. Um, I think from the UK's point of view, having a strong tech sector, not only substantively, but also optically does a lot for government in positioning the UK um, as being attractive to global investment and very much supporting that open, open Britain investment case. Um, and finally, I think it's important to remember the quality of education that we have in this country, particularly compared with some of the developing countries that we're competing with on a tech level. And I think we'll see Britain really reminding the rest of the world that from an investment point of view, one of the reasons to bring your tech companies here is because we have the skilled workforce to be able to um, to, power, to power it. So from a practical perspective, what sorts of things are the government likely to look to do to get, to get there? Um, I think, um, I mean, I'm... I'm drawing on what special advisors have told me when we've been into number 10 and to other government departments as well as ministers, but also um, a bit of guesswork. But I've come up with about five areas where I think government will be, will be looking. The first is investment in research centres, um, probably within existing universities, but certainly away from the southeast of England. Um, secondly, I think we will see changes to the national curriculum, which will encourage a much greater focus on skills development. Uh, thirdly, I think procurement requirements within government tenders um, are much more likely to ensure a sharp focus on tech 
where possible, just like incidentally, I think we're going to see a much sharper focus on um, on climate change. But uh, I think tech will feature much more as a as a um, alternative return uh, on contracts, uh, and that obviously includes skills transfer, but in a in a sustainable um, investment area, um, such as in research. Um, fourthly, I think we may well see some tax incentives coming out in the budget and subsequently uh, for businesses and individuals who help forward the tech agenda for government and tech agenda means fulfilling some of those domestic and international policy objectives that I've mentioned. Um, and finally, I think um, there will be additional support for inward investment, so from those outside of the UK who are helping government deliver progress in the tech sector because of what it does to some of the government's other agendas. So are there specific things that high tech businesses can look to in terms of uh, in terms of benefiting from that? Um, I think they can look for opportunities um, to benefit from government investment. I think we will see government buying in the tech sector much more than we've seen in the last five to ten years. Um, uh, but I think businesses need to be alive to the need for training and upskilling, uh, and as I say, particularly away from the southeast. Um, but also to be innovative in terms of looking to reskill those who are going on to a uh, second or subsequent career as well. But I, I think the opportunity to benefit from government buying is probably the greatest uh, from, a, from a government perspective. And are there specific things that businesses can do to help government with this? Um, yes, I think um, one of the common misunderstandings, which may itself be hard for some people to believe, is that is that government is not an expert. Government does not have many of the answers it needs. Government uh, will uh, apply a political prison and then uh, will execute, but but does rely on on the likes of Craig and and obviously representatives from all sectors to provide it with some expertise. Um, but I think one of the challenges, and I certainly experienced this when I was inside government, was. Government doesn't even know the questions it often needs to ask, and I think um, those uh, those who are advising should be clear to government, not just of what need, needs to happen, but what government needs to be asking the sector to happen. So I think there's a great opportunity for businesses to take a step back and put themselves in the shoes of government uh, in terms of um, formulating the correct question. Um, I'll echo what Greg said earlier about not just complaining and providing problems, but provide solutions government might not like to show that it doesn't know, but behind closed doors, it's always delighted when someone's done the heavy lifting for them. Uh, and obviously, that provides a much more sustainable solution as well. Um, and finally, um, uh, loathe to say this, but don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. I think it's important to recognise that there will need to be compromise. And if there's to be progress in the right direction from the sector's point of view, the sector will need to understand that government has a political agenda as well, and that sometimes you're going to have to meet both both meet halfway, but I think if there's progress in the right direction uh, and it's not too uh, irksome, then I would encourage you to go for it and try and see some progress in the sector. So turning to investing in M&A, Caitlin, is Brexit likely to result in changes in the law which have specific implications for the way deals are done? So merger control rules aside, private M&A in the UK is primarily a function of English contract law, which isn't materially impacted by Brexit. But many of the rules governing public companies and the way that public takeovers are done are derived from EU laws. And the UK is in the process of making technical changes to ensure the continuity of those rules. Historically, the UK has pushed for higher standards than many of the other EU countries, so any deviation from EU rules is likely to be in that direction. One point to flag is that currently two companies that are incorporated in two different EU member states can combine through a cross-border merger process, but unless an agreement is reached between the UK and the EU, which allows UK companies to continue to participate in that regime after Brexit, UK companies will not be able to undertake cross-border mergers after the end of this year. But as I mentioned earlier, the main legal changes which could impact on how we go about doing M&A in the UK relate to the merger control rules. Angus, what's your view on how Brexit could impact on competition law in the UK? Thanks, Gaitan. Um, well, interestingly, there are no significant changes to either the EU or the UK merger control regimes as a result of Brexit. Um, but there are two very important consequential changes because the UK will stop being an EU member state. The first is um, that the turnover of businesses, which counts towards um, thresholds for jurisdiction, 
uh, will no longer be counted towards the EU threshold. It's actually quite hard to predict in the abstract um, whether this means more transactions being reviewed by the UK, which would have been reviewed by the EU, or vice versa. Um, depending on the detail of, of the transaction, it's possible that it could move in either direction. Um, however, there is at least potential predictability for any individual deal that companies might be considering where it will be possible in advance to work out what the answer is there. The second um, important jurisdictional um, change will be that the, the one-stop shop principle will no longer apply. So even if the EU is reviewing a merger, it's also possible that the same merger could be reviewed by the UK at the same time. Um, that will have procedural impacts because the, the EU and the UK have very different timetables. Um, the Competition Markets Authority in the UK and DG Comp in Brussels are used to coordinating on a number of things, but not yet on mergers. Um, they are, however, used to dealing with third countries, competition um, regulators, and we'd hope that they can pretty soon work out um, a mode of operating. Substantively, though, potentially more worryingly, um, it's possible that because of different legal tests or because of actual genuine differences in the markets on the ground, um, the EU and the UK may come up with different answers and a deal which is cleared by one um, uh, jurisdiction is in fact blocked by another. I think probably also last worth mentioning in this area that UK jurisdiction is in theory voluntary. One doesn't have to make a filing to the UK even if falling within UK jurisdiction. But even absent Brexit, that is less and less true in practice. In fact, non-engagement is very much less attractive um, for uh, parties considering any sort of substantive merger with competitors than it used to be. So what's that actually mean in practice? Well, there'll be some short-term complexities with cases which are probably already being considered and certainly being considered up to the, the final exit date. Um, there's some pretty good guidance there that we can draw here from what's happened in previous potential exit dates. So first of all, the, the CMA, the UK authority, is likely to shadow transactions um, where parties have already engaged with DG competition in pre-notification discussions. Um, even where the CMA doesn't reach out to parties, then parallel engagement with the two authorities is likely to be advisable in lots of circumstances. Of course, any um, merger filings, clearances required will need to be reflected as well in transactional documents conditions precedent and so forth. But again, actually, we've got some pretty we've had some pretty good dry runs at this in transactions which were due to complete before the, the previous thresholds. And just moving away from the sort of technical aspects of Brexit and looking more broadly at the view of antitrust authorities about tech or UK authorities, where do you think that sits now? Well the CMA is thinking about tech above everything else, but in that it has in common that has that feature in common with almost every competition authority in the world. So, for example, the European Commission is looking at transparency um, and big tech. Well, the CMA is doing the same in its review of digital platforms. Um, the, the CMA talks quite a good game about positive, um, a positive view of tech and um, probably small deals with a positive growth rationale. Um, but they do share with lots of competition authorities a, a concern about um, big tech and big tech buying up businesses both in their own area and in neighbouring markets, um, what get called killer acquisitions or zombie acquisitions. Um, with all of these, though, whether the, the deal that um, one's thinking about is a, a big tech acquisition or two startups merging, really the key is engagement with the authorities, which in, in this case may mean the CMA, um, making sure that you're on the right track, positioning yourself with them considering whether you need to engage with them, and in fact, making sure that any internal documents that you have tell the right story from the earlier stage so that you don't trip up on them later. Richard, we've heard about the risks of no deal and where we are on trade talks. Where does that overall leave potential investors in tech in terms of approaching deals they might think about? Well, from a purely technical and legal perspective, I don't think it's actually going to have an impact on the way that we operate and run deals and uh, terminology and provisions actually going to deal documents themselves. I think it's more around the process and the investigations, particularly on the diligence, 
and the disclosure exercise um, to understanding actual impact on the underlying business, which is as much a commercial, financial, as well as a legal issue. So, as I say, whether or not the deal is impacted by Brexit is going to depend on the nature of the target business itself and the sector it's operating in, for example, in financial services, does the business have the appropriate permissions and authorizations? The same is true in relation to the life sciences sector. As Alina has mentioned, the movement of people could potentially be problematic and this forms part of the government's broader immigration strategy more generally. And fundamentally, businesses that have global integrated supply chains are going to have to deal with the practical implications of enhanced custom checks and the potential impact on tariffs and what that means in terms of their margins. And it's absolutely crucial whether you're on the buy side or the sell side that you really understand what that impact is likely to be at a time when there's a distinct lack of clarity. So that does mean that for those buyers who can, you know, attempt to predict the future or feel that they've got a degree of sophistication, there may be opportunities for them to kind of exploit these opportunities uh, with a view to um, maximising the potential return on investment. An example of this is the flow of personal data between the UK and the EU, as we've already touched on previously. The EU is currently assessing whether, for the purposes of GDPR, the UK will be regarded as an adequate jurisdiction for the transfer of personal data, and we'll be covering this topic in more detail at the subsequent webinar on the 25th of March. But from an M&A perspective, if you're considering buying businesses which are reliant on cross-border data flows, you do really need to consider the impact that the flow of that data may be restricted at the end of the transitional period if that adequacy test cannot be met. Okay, then. Given this current state of play, are there specific tools that potential investors should be thinking about to manage risks and opportunities? Yes. So there are a number of ways in which investors can think about allocating these types of risks when they get to negotiating their transaction documentation. So on the slide on the screen at the moment, uh, we have a description of some of those tools and the ways in which they can be used based in the context of a one-off transaction, such as an M&A deal, but also in the context of a longer-term commercial or strategic partnership. So all of these mechanisms allocate risks between the parties, and one of the key considerations will be how pricing and valuation is calculated. For example, taking into account certain costs or increased tariffs which may arise as a result of a no-deal Brexit. In our recent conversations with warrantine indemnity insurers, they are also nervous about pricing Brexit risk. So if you're a buyer who usually relies on W&I insurance to cover many of the risks which are traditionally associated with buying a business, you really do need to be aware that the risks associated with Brexit may not be covered by those insurers. Another thing to think about, as I've already mentioned, if you're acting on the buy side, is how you focus your diligence questions and similarly the, the warranties that you'll be included in your purchase agreement to ensure you're getting the right access to the information, to, to the target company's Brexit planning information. And that's going to be a critical thing for you to be um, aware of as you think about that in the context of your own Brexit planning. And whether you're on the buy side or the sell side, everyone's going to need to think about how to approach conditionality and the impact of adverse changes such as the cliff edge that Charles was talking about at the outset. When we're operating in this rather unknown transitional period, and if a transaction is going to sign in the course of 2020 but is likely to close, in 2021, when the landscape may look very different, um, everyone will need to consider carefully the, the implications for MAE or MAC clauses. Um, it's also worth bearing in mind that many of these tools are not new, they're not unique to this market, although depending on whether or not you're acting for US clients or, or, or European or Asian clients, the, the terminology and the way in which those tools are, are deployed depending on the market dynamics is always something that's worth bearing in mind. But stepping away from the legal technicalities, have we actually seen Brexit causing much of an impact in the M&A market? Well, interestingly, despite the uncertainty that's been around since um, the original Brexit vote, um, we don't see that there's been a real impact um, on, on M&A activity. And, and M&A in the technology sector in particular has remained very, very buoyant. In fact, some recent merger market data shows that deal value in the technology sector was up 82% uh, in 2019 versus 2018. Um, it's also worth noting that since the election last year, we now have a degree of political stability 
Um, and Brexit is effectively a known unknown in that we all know Brexit will occur on the 31st of December. We just don't know what shape or form that will necessarily take. And arguably, the UK has more stability from a political perspective than many other European countries and possibly even the US. So in some ways, you could say that the UK is a more certain environment in which to, to invest as opposed to other jurisdictions, which are usually perceived as being M&A friendly. Anecdotally, I'd say from the experience around the table um, in the transactional team at Hogan Lovells, I would say that there has been a notable uptick in new mandates in the immediate aftermath of last year's election, particularly acting for overseas purchasers who are looking to do things in the UK and Europe. So, Caitlin, looking forward, are we likely to see further impacts on investment or M&A in the UK market, and is that likely to affect particular parts of the market? I think, as Richard said, you know, we think the relative impact will really depend on the type of business which is being bought or sold rather than necessarily the type of investor or the size of the deal. But that said, the UK government has identified both technology and life sciences as clear priorities for investment in the UK. And that does present real opportunity for investors who are looking at businesses operating in those sectors, and particularly given the government's agenda to increase investment in the regions outside of London, those investors who are looking beyond London and the South East. And as Robert explained earlier, we're likely to see the government using the opportunity of Brexit to explore creative regulatory solutions to encourage investment in the UK. Last year, we saw the Information Commissioner's Office exploring a privacy sandbox, and that's a trend we may well see more of. So just turning to one or two of the specific elements of, of the high-tech sectors, you mentioned earlier that life sciences is a political priority for government after Brexit. So what's the implications of that for investors in digital health? So the UK government has reiterated its commitment to making the UK the leading global hub for life sciences after Brexit. There's real focus on driving innovation in the health sector and developing a creative regulatory and reimbursement environment which will be attractive to investors in digital health, particularly those which will really help the NHS at a time at the moment when NHS funding is an area of significant scrutiny and political pressure. It's likely that the government will look to digital health businesses to help to move healthcare and also you know, the population's approach to healthcare from being reactive to preventative. And that shift in approach could really have a materially beneficial impact on NHS resources. And considering all of this from the perspective of an investor in a UK digital health business, the existence of the NHS itself means that the UK is a really unique jurisdiction to innovate in that sector not least because it holds the keys to a really extensive set of data which could be of real value to digital health companies. Businesses can also partner with the NHS to trial the use of innovative health solutions in a clinical setting. That could be considered alongside the UK government's commitment to providing increased R&D funding and unlocking long-term capital in pension funds to invest in UK scientific discoveries. And alongside that, the UK Medicines and Medical Devices Regulator, the MHRA, intend to develop a proportionate regulatory environment for the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare, and that will work alongside medical device regulation. There's a really tangible feeling in the industry that the government and regulators are genuinely focused on driving innovation in digital health and creating a regulatory environment post-Brexit that will help to facilitate that. And as both Robert and Craig have already mentioned, that really does mean it's, a, it's a, an opportune time for businesses and investors in, involved in digital health to proactively engage with the government and with industry bodies such as the ABHI to help to shape the regulatory and legislative agenda in that direction. Richard, the UK has worked particularly hard over recent years to make itself an attractive destination for fintech investment. Is what's going on now likely to create more opportunities or make it less favourable? Uh, possibly a combination of both, if I'm honest. Obviously, the potential loss of the ability to passport permissions, uh, and we should have greater clarity on whether or not that forms part of any trade deal in the coming months, um, could potentially have an impact on, on businesses that are trying to expand into Europe. But fundamentally, the UK remains an attractive place in which to build and scale fintech businesses. Um, if we cast our minds right back to um, the Cameron government, who were the proponents of the UK fintech push, the ecosystem that's been developed over the last few years has been founded on four principal tenants. And those are access to customers, whether that's on the B2B side, the B2B to C side, or the B2C side, because of the sophisticated financial services 
market that already exists in this country, a really deep pool of talent coming from those established players and also the universities that are are, are training the next generation of, of engineers. Um, access to capital um, and a really progressive regulatory regime and supportive policy environment. And, and of those, I think it's actually the, the regulatory regime that's the real flywheel, that's created a real flywheel effect because the FCA is often held out as um, a really progressive regulator and a lot of the ideas that have been started in the UK, such as the, the regulatory sandbox, the fintech bridges, those concepts and ideas are now being adopted um, in many other markets. Um, and it obviously it will remain to, to be seen whether or not that momentum can can remain as, as we move forward into 2020 and, and beyond. But, I mean, the data shows um, that the amount of money being invested into UK fintech doubled over the course of 2019. So KPMG, in a report that they released this week, um, commented that, in 2018, 25 billion was invested in UK fintechs. That rose to nearly 48 billion in, in 2019. Of the lot of the top 10 deals in in the in Europe um, involving fintech companies, five were UK companies. And Revolut just raised a record-breaking 500 million dollars earlier this week as well. So there are companies that have cited Brexit as a reason with which to withdraw. N26, um, the German neobank. Is probably the most high profile of those, um, and that is no doubt a factor in their thinking. But but Brexit has been on the cards, you know, for a number of years, long before N26 actually launched into the market. And so it's just as possible that that their, their decision to withdraw is is more about the robust nature of the neobank market in the UK with the likes of Revolut, Monzo, and Starling Bank, as it is about um, Brexit. Um, it's also worth bearing in mind that a number of the fintechs that we're working with here at Hogan Lovells are actually looking towards the US um, as their secondary market, if, they, if their primary market has been has been the UK. Um, and so it may be that not every UK-based fintech necessarily wants or needs to jump into to Europe as they look to grow and scale their business. So on the whole, a lot to be positive about, but a lot of unknowns as well. So the particular categories of fintech asset which are more or less likely to be invested? Well, any, anyone whose products and services that are reliant on access to the European market obviously are likely to find it more difficult if the ability to passport falls away um, to the extent they haven't already set up a separate subsidiary within the UK and have got appropriate permissions that allow them to continue to operate. Um, it's far too early to tell whether or not this is going to affect all products and services. And as I said, not everybody wants to operate in the in the EU. Um, clearly, different regulators adopt slightly different approaches, and there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach across the whole of the EU. Um, so that will mean that there's likely to be um, some teething problems, and we'll be navigating that over the course of the coming months and years. Um, clearly, there are issues around the ability to continue to attract top talent into the UK and whether or not the UK remains a favourable destination for entrepreneurs and highly skilled um, people who want to work in, in a dynamic fintech environment will, will feel welcome and want to come to the UK. Um, and as Aline mentioned, free movement of people is going to end at the end of this year. So that does present a number of challenges um, and lots of that will be wrapped up as part of the government's immigration strategy more broadly. Okay, so that brings us actually to one of the questions we've been asked, Craig. Uh, one of the questions we've been asked is around talent and a concern that companies from outside the UK that are looking to make use of extensive talent are feeling perhaps isolated or not looked after now, given the, the view on free movement. So obviously there's um, an issue around the language and the culture and the sort of narrative around um, immigration exit which has been troubling. Um, but on the practicalities, obviously we've seen the Home Office, in, well, set out most, well, obviously some, not most of the details of its post-Brexit immigration policy. Um, and with for tech, I mean, we're very reliant on the Tier 2 visa. And access to talent was highlighted as a, one of the top three uh, concerns around Brexit. Um, obviously there's some things in there we actually kind of like. that The current Tier 2 structure is very bureaucratic. It's cost an absolute fortune. And... For an SME looking to expand and wanting to get some engineers in from anywhere in the world, it's it's just too expensive to do that. So that actually could inhibit their growth and access to talent. 
Um, obviously, we need a lot more detail, but they have promised to simplify the procedure, reduce the length of time that it takes. Um, but obviously, we haven't seen how much it's going to cost, and that's, that's actually the biggest barrier. Not, and it's not just cost to the employer, the cost to the potential employee as well. And overall, you're getting a situation where it's a lot more expensive to get the talent you need. So if you wanted to level up the UK, if you wanted to set up a tech business in, in Leeds or Newcastle or Manchester, it's going to be more expensive to get the people to do that than it is, say, in uh, Barcelona or Berlin or some other kind of competitive cities. Um, now, some of that is the reality of Brexit, that, that you know, immigration is a key domestic concern for this government. However, it can't, um, what's that phrase, um, baby bath order, that one applies. That if you make it too hard to bring people in, you're not going to get the leveling up uh, impacts that you want. And we really need this clarity on how much a tier two visa is simply going to cost. Uh, we need them to be more welcoming in the language and the narrative that they use. And uh, do what they can to just reduce the administrative burden to everyone to actually bring in the talent. Um, and that's only on the tier two. I don't think we have specific views on some of the English language requirements or the salary caps. Because uh, to be honest, a lot of the tech jobs are well in excess of the minimum threshold proposed by the MAC. Okay. Thank you. Caitlin, just to finish off on, on parts of the uh, tech economy, the UK automotive sector, clearly there are some challenges for the traditional industry by supply chain issues, but what about new automotive and transportation technologies like driverless cars? So Technology is absolutely key to the future of the automotive industry, given the development of connected and autonomous vehicles. And the UK at the moment is amongst a handful of countries that are really leading the way in this shift. And we can see that through the, you know, the legalised testing of autonomous vehicles, the introduction of the world's first insurance legislation for autonomous vehicles, and, and all of the investment in the infrastructure that relates to that. Um, there was a report last year that said that the UK was in a pole position to benefit from that and suggested that you know, autonomous and connected vehicles could boost the UK economy by up to £62 billion in the next 10 years as a result of job creation, greater connectivity and automation and reducing the number of road deaths and zero accidents. So great progress is being made, but significant further reform on the legal and regulatory side is really required to get there. So, for example, the legislation which deals with road traffic will need to be updated and we also need to take a look at the civil liability framework. Investment in communications infrastructure, so more widespread 4G and the rollout of 5G will also be key. So, on the one hand, greater flexibility with regard to regulation, so perhaps through regulatory divergence between the EU and the UK following the end of the transition period, could potentially be helpful, but actually on balance, Given the UK government's focus on being a world leader in innovation and technology, all of the factors that we've already talked about here today are likely to have more of an impact on the UK continuing to be seen as a politically stable destination to investors in the technology and infrastructure sectors, and as, as well as a destination for talent. And, um, and so I guess in that regard, the UK's ability to reach a trade deal with the EU is crucial. Thank you. Well, we've had quite a few questions in today. Uh, but unfortunately, our time's up, so what we'll do is respond to those individually rather than try and uh, take up more time and run over now. But thank you to everyone who submitted questions, and as I say, we will come back with an individual response by email after the call. So that concludes today's webinar. Our webinar looking at the UK budget and the impact of Brexit on cross-border litigation will be on Wednesday, the 12th of March at 3.30. Details of this and future webinars will be sent by, out by email and available on our Brexit hub. And as always, to discuss how Brexit might impact your business in more detail and how you can best prepare and move on from Brexit, beyond Brexit, contact one of today's presenters or a member of our task force. The email address is on the slide. So thank you for listening and goodbye.